Good morning. Do you like what we've done with the place? You like this? I realize that we haven't really explained this at all. We're just kind of pretending it's not there. If you don't know what's going on, Sonora High School is putting on a play, and um, they use this as part of their theater, which is right behind us. So that's why this is here. We think it will be gone next week, but we really don't know that. So uh, maybe get used to it. But at least I thought we'd describe what it's doing here, and I thought I'd use this opportunity to say, we pray for the school, we pray for the students, for the teachers, we pray for Dr. Bailey, the principal. We're so grateful to be here and be able to use this space to praise the Lord and to hear his word. And I would just say, this is a great way to support the school. Kind of a reminder, actually, that we're in a high school, so if you're looking for something to do, come and see the music man. I think it's the music man. Yes? Okay, I'm getting a nod from a Sonora student. That means yes. Come and see the music man or go and see the boys basketball team that I think is in the CIF finals at Honda Center. I mean, there's all kinds of good stuff happening at the school. So be a part of it. Support them because they're supporting us by allowing us to be here every week. So that's the plug for Sonora this morning. Um, Good morning. We're continuing this morning our series in the book of Acts. And um, if you've been with us, you know that um, the book of Acts is written by Luke, Luke who wrote the Gospel of Luke, and this is essentially Luke writing what happens after Jesus leaves, the continuation of Jesus' ministry after Jesus ascends back to heaven, the ministry being continued by his disciples. And what we're witnessing is a group of people that are surrendered to the work that God is doing in their life, and the book of Acts is recording what happens It's essentially the work that the Holy Spirit is doing through a people that are surrendered to be used on his behalf. Last week, we looked at the mission, the mission of proclaiming the gospel, the good news, and that that is a mission that God cares very deeply about, that God cares about his mission, and that that's not easy for those who follow him. The mission is not always easy. The struggle is real for the followers of Jesus but that God also cares about the morale of his people. He gives them the Holy Spirit, which Scripture refers to as the comforter. And then he also gives God's family, God's family, the church, a group of brothers and sisters in Christ who can care for and provide for and protect and encourage one another. And we saw that in our passage last week, how God cares deeply about the mission and the proclamation of the gospel, but that God also cares deeply about his people and about how they're doing as they do it, because it's difficult. And the purpose of that is so that we as the followers of Jesus can pursue his mission with joy, because we get to do it together, and we have one another to look out for each other and to care for each other and encourage as we do that. This morning, we're going to continue to see the mission of God advance through the book of Acts. But we're going to see it advance in a way that, um, that feels a little bit uncomfortable. We've seen that a lot in the book of Acts. Maybe it's advancing in a way that we wouldn't hope it would advance because it sets a difficult precedent for us. And if you're a follower of God at the time that Acts 12 is written, you're going to have to start developing a very deep understanding of the sovereignty of God because it's getting very tough. And I think that's true for us this morning as a family of people who want to follow Jesus and want to help each other do that, that this morning we have to start to discuss what it means to have a deep understanding of the sovereignty of God. 
Sovereign is not a word that we use very often like in our everyday language. So let me just explain what I mean when I say that God is sovereign and that we need to understand that a little bit if we're going to follow him because we need to understand what that implies. When we say that God is sovereign, by definition, sovereign means supreme power or authority. Absolute power, absolute authority, absolute control. And so when we say that God is sovereign, we say that God is in control, God has absolute power, complete control and authority over everything. And so when something amazing happens, something wonderful happens, something awesome happens, we say, praise God, he's in control of that. He has power over that, he has authority over that, and so we praise God. But what happens when something bad takes place? What happens when something occurs that is not awesome, This may be terrible, If we're going to claim the sovereignty of God, then the sovereignty of God applies in that situation as well. And we have to say that God is in control and God has authority. And then what do we do with that? That's where we really begin to struggle with the sovereignty of God. If we say that God is sovereign, what does that mean in difficult situations? And let me just be clear about one thing before we enter the text this morning. God is sovereign. That's not the question we're asking this morning. It's not a theory we're testing whether or not God is sovereign. He is sovereign. The question for the followers of Christ in Acts 12 and the question for the followers of Christ this morning is, will we submit to a sovereign God? Will I accept that God is sovereign? Will I trust him in that? The question is not about God. The question is about us and what do we do with a sovereign God? We're going to open the word of God this morning, and before we do that, would you pray with me? Father God, would you meet us here this morning, and would you speak to us through your word? We're so grateful to be here this morning to open your word this morning, and we just ask that you would open our hearts to hear what you have to say. Lord, this morning, would you give us a greater understanding of your power and authority over all things, and would you help us to trust that authority? Would you help us to even rest in that authority? We pray this in the name of your Son. Amen. Turn with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible this morning, we have some here for you. They're in the baskets here on the aisle, so you are welcome to get one. Um, It would be totally appropriate for you to stand up and grab one, but that would probably make you feel awkward. You can just raise your hand. We'll pass one down to you. Or you can just listen, that's totally fine. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, we just want you to know that they're there, and you're welcome to take that home with you as you leave today. We just want you to know that that's available. But we're going to be in Acts chapter 12 this morning, and last week, Luke pointed out that the followers of Jesus had scattered quite a bit since the stoning of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. If you've been with us, you remember that, Stephen being stoned. That's five chapters ago. And the believers have spread all over the world since then, it would seem. But what we don't get as we read through Acts is a very good sense of time. It's hard for us to understand exactly how long this has been. By the time we get to Acts chapter 12, it's been about 10 years, somewhere between 7 to 12 years. And for some of you, that's a surprise because you didn't know that each chapter was a year or more. Um, It was a surprise to me as well. Wow, that's a long time. What does that mean? That means that the persecution against the followers of Jesus has been persistent. 
It's been persistence for seven, eight, nine, ten plus years. It's been persistent and it's been consistently increasing. Because we saw Stephen stoned and the believers driven out of Jerusalem and the gospel going out. But this morning, we're seeing even more persecution against the followers of Jesus. So read with me. Acts chapter 12, we're going to start in verse 1 this morning. It says, About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread, and when he had seized him... He put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. So the persecution of the Christians is not only coming from the Jewish leaders, it's now coming from the king himself, who is sympathetic with the Jews and is persecuting the Christians. And it says that Herod lays violent hands on the followers of Jesus. That is not a good thing. They're being oppressed and persecuted and harassed by the king. And it says that he kills James, the brother of John. James, one of the disciples, one of Jesus' disciples, one of the 12 who walked with Jesus through his ministry. James, the brother of John, the two brothers that were invited into ministry with Jesus, is gone. He's been killed. He's the first of the apostles to die for his faith. And Herod is this power-hungry, glory-hungry king. And we're going to see this unfold even more through the chapter as we read about him. But Herod is displaying his power over the Christians. And when he sees that this gets a response from the Jews, he decides, well, the only thing that's better than power and glory is more power and glory. So after he arrests and kills James, and he sees that he gets a good response from that, he arrests Peter as well. And he's going to put him on trial as soon as the Passover is done. So knowingly or not, Herod has aligned himself in direct opposition to God, which I'm just going to say, and you probably know, is not a good idea. And we're going to see that unfold through this chapter as well. So God is sovereign, right? We're kind of stating that as a fact out front. God is in control. He has absolute authority. But James is dead. James has been killed. Peter's been arrested and he's going on trial, will probably be executed as soon as Passover is done. So how do we reconcile this? God has allowed this to happen. God has allowed James to be killed. And if we're going to say that God is sovereign, then we have to believe that there are no Oops moments for God. This did not happen while God was looking the other way or paying attention to something else. This did not happen because the believers didn't pray enough for James and God is punishing them for that. This was not a mistake. God allowed it to happen. In fact, Jesus warned James and John that this would happen. If you remember in the book of Mark, it was James and John, the brothers, that came to Jesus and said, Lord, we want to sit at your right and left hand when you sit in glory. And Jesus said, you have no idea what you're asking. Do you? He says, can you drink from the cup that I'm going to drink from? And James and John have no idea what they're answering, but they say, "Uh uh-huh. Yeah, we can. Yeah, we can. And Jesus says this in Mark, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism which I am baptized, you will be baptized. 
baptized. For James, it's time to drink the cup. It's not a punishment. He's not being punished. It's a privilege. In his death, he's identified with Jesus. He's identified with him in his suffering, and he's with his Savior. God says, I am sovereign, and I will allow this to happen. And that's hard for us. But God uses difficult things to advance his message. We've already seen this. We saw it in the stoning of Stephen and how the message of God has gone out to the world because of it. And we're seeing it again with James, difficult things that advance the kingdom of God. In fact, Paul will write later, when Paul is in prison, he writes this, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And most of the brothers are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul gets it. God understands that there is power even in martyrdom. And look at the response of the church here even now. It says, but earnest prayer was made for Peter to God. They're praying to God that he would rescue. God's people are moved to seek a sovereign God for the rescue of Peter. The death of James doesn't cause them to question the sovereignty of God. The death of James causes them to appeal to the sovereignty of God. They're driven to him as a result of their circumstance. Now read with me. This is a great story this morning. You're going to love this. Starting in verse 6. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, we're talking about Peter, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. So let me just paint the picture really quickly and ask you a question. Peter's in prison. He's got a chain on each wrist. On the end of each of those chains is a guard. And then at the cell door are two more guards. He is in like significant lockdown. He's a high value prisoner. <clears throat> and what is Peter doing? Weeping. Nope. Sleeping. He's asleep. On the night before he's going to get executed, he's asleep. Are you kidding me? Would you be asleep? That's the question. Would you be asleep? You're going to get killed in the morning. I would not be asleep. And here's the thing. I think Peter is surrendered to a sovereign God. I think this just speaks to his trust in the Lord. Here's a guy that walked with Jesus. This is a guy that got out of the boat to walk on water. And Peter's just like, yeah, whatever, Lord, bring it on. Kill me, let me go, doesn't matter. I am surrendered to a sovereign God, and I'm going to proclaim the gospel. And I'm not going to stop until someone stops me. Isn't that cool? Anyway, <laughs> verse 7. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, get up quickly. Peter's not like dozing off. He is asleep. The angel actually hits him to wake him up. Okay. <laughs> get up quickly, and the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals, and he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. This is like the coolest prison escape of all time. 
it's also like the loudest, most overt prison escape of all time. Peter's in prison, a bright light shines into the cell, his chains fall to the ground, and the angel stands there giving him instructions because he's totally asleep. He wakes him up by hitting him, and then he gives him like step-by-step instructions. Peter, get up. Peter, put your clothes on. Peter, put your shoes on. Peter, put your jacket on, and now come with me. That's really what it says. That's really how it goes. And they walk out of the prison. And when they get to the iron gate of the city, it opens, and they walk out into the city, and they go down a street, and the angel disappears. And then Peter's like, hey, wait a minute. Did that really happen? (laughs) That really happened. He thought the whole thing was a dream. Isn't that cool? God is sovereign. He has authority and power and control. And he is sovereign to act in extraordinary ways and to rescue his people in extraordinary ways. And God's power and his control are very clear. And God's message to Herod is clear. You can put four squads of guards around my guy and you can put him in prison. But if I want him, I'll get him because I'm God. And I'm not done with Peter yet. I've got stuff for him to do. And your power and authority, Herod, extend as far as I will allow. That's what the sovereignty of God looks like. Verse 12, the story continues. When he realized this, Peter, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. And then he departed, and he went to another place. I can hear you laughing as I'm reading the story. There is some humor in this, right? I mean, this is unbelievable what God is doing, and it's almost funny the response of God's people to what he's doing. When Peter finally realizes what's happened, he goes to where he knows his family will be, his church family. He knows they're going to be there probably because they've assembled there a lot before. It's also the mother of James who was just killed. It's her house, and he knows that they'll be there praying. And when he gets there, the poor servant girl is so excited to see him that she leaves him at the gate and runs inside. And Peter's just left at the gate, knocking. But think about this. She's been part of this prayer vigil that's been going on for who knows how long, praying for the rescue of Peter. This is, to the best of our knowledge, taking place about four or five in the morning, which means they've been praying all night, maybe for days on end, praying that Peter would be rescued, and their prayer's been answered. So she wants to tell everybody, hey, our prayer's been answered, Peter's here. And they're like, you're nuts. And there's also a bit of comedy to think about Peter, who was chained to two guards, locked in a cell inside of Herod's prison, and God undid all of those things, but he can't get into his friend's mom's house. <laughs> his friends don't believe Rhoda, can't be true, must be an angel, must be a vision, must be a spirit, and then they go and look for themselves, and they're like, oh, no, it's really Peter, and he's still knocking. Someone should let him in. Peter's escape from prison is a surprise to Peter, and it's a surprise to his friends. 
right? They're all shocked at what's going on. And when Peter shows up, I think they're thinking, you're early. Because his trial was supposed to happen that day. And they're probably thinking, we weren't praying, we were praying for you to be delivered through your trial, not from your trial. And Peter is thinking, guys, I should probably get out of here. But tell everybody what God has done. And I wanted you to know that I'm alive, and now I'm going to run. And he does. He gets out of there. Verse 18, the comedy continues. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent some time there. God has exercised his sovereignty. God has exercised his authority over Herod. And he's stolen his day of glory, the day he's going to bring out Peter, the pillar of the church, and try and execute him before the people. Herod has planned this grand trial and execution, and God took it away. And the issue is no one can find Peter, and no one can offer an explanation of what's happened. God has exercised authority over Herod. And now Luke is going to finish Herod's story through the end of chapter 12. Look with me in verse 20. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. It's not as funny anymore. The people of Tyre and Sidon, just so you have an understanding of what's going on, are dependent on Herod for food. They need Herod. And he's mad at them. So they have to beg him, essentially, to relieve them. So they find someone that's close to Herod and they convince him to give them relief. And so Herod comes out to give this great speech before all of these people. And it says he puts on his royal robes. Josephus, who's a historian writing at the same time as Luke is writing the book of Acts, tells this story in great detail and you can look it up. But he says that Herod puts on a robe that's woven out of silver. And he comes out before the people and he comes out when the sun is coming up so that he will be as magnificent as possible, that the sun will reflect off of his silver coat. I mean, you have to really be into yourself to do this. But Herod is hungry for power and for glory. And he's going to take full advantage of this opportunity. So he comes out to give this speech and he gives this speech and the people, they have to suck up to him because they need the food. And so they say, man, this is the voice of a God, not of a man. And Herod does not deflect that. And Luke says <clears throat> that he's struck and he's going to be eaten by worms. The people respond to Herod's speech by showering him with praise and glory. And the, the actual God takes issue with that. And he strikes him down. It says he strikes him down and he's eaten by worms. Probably not literally that he falls down and worms crawl out and eat him on the spot. The way that Josephus describes this is at that moment, at that exact moment, 
Herod is struck with this deep pain in his heart and in his stomach, and he knows immediately he's going to die. And he dies five days later. And it's possible that his death has something to do with worms. Heartworm, ringworm, lungworm, tapeworm, I don't know. It's possible it has nothing to do with worms. We're used to Luke giving us a medical account. He's a doctor. But in fact, this phrase, he's just using uh, like vernacular of the day, eaten by worms. He's dead and eaten by worms. So we don't know exactly what the illness is. What we know is that God has struck him down. God is sovereign. He's sovereign over kings and rulers. And he's exercised his authority over Herod, and Herod has been humbled. In fact, Herod has been killed. God's had enough of Herod stealing glory that is rightfully his. Chapter 12 ends with this. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Says the word of God increased and multiplied. Of course it did, right? This happens every time. This happens in every chapter. Despite everything that comes against God's people and the church and God's mission and his agenda, God advances his mission and his agenda in the world because God is in control. God is sovereign over his message and his mission, and he's in control. His message will advance. And if you're like Herod and you're going to stand in the way, you're, you're going to have to move or God will move you out of the way. So chapter 12, James is killed. Peter's put in prison. God orchestrates this unbelievable rescue and Herod is eaten by worms. So what do we do with all of that? I think we do with that what we know to take from that, that God is sovereign Regardless of circumstance, regardless of evidence that we may think is to the contrary, God is sovereign. God is sovereign over difficult things. The death of James, what do we do with that? There are no oops moments with God. He's not making a mistake. He's allowed it to happen. That's what it means to recognize God as sovereign. So he's sovereign over difficult things. He's sovereign and can rescue in extraordinary ways like we see him do with Peter and his rescue. He makes his power known to Peter, he makes his power known to his followers, and he makes his power known to Herod, who's like, hey, where's Peter? No explanation. He's sovereign over kings and over rulers. He makes that very clear to Herod. Your power and authority extend as far as I will allow, and scripture is very clear. God sets up kings and rulers, and he takes them down all at his discretion. And he's sovereign over his message and his mission. Despite what comes at them, the message and agenda of God, the mission of God will continue and will advance because it's God's mission. So the question for us becomes, will I surrender to a sovereign God? Will I surrender my life? Will I trust will I submit to that God, that sovereign God, a God that will allow hard things and a God that can do unbelievable, miraculous things at his discretion? Will I submit to and will I trust a God that has the power to rescue me or not? Will I submit to or trust a God that has the power to heal me 
or my loved ones or not will I submit to and trust a sovereign God who has the power to save my life or the life of someone I love or choose not to, to deliver me from my difficult circumstance or choose not to. Don't get me wrong, he, he is that God. That's not the question. The question is how do we respond to that God as his people? And that's hard. And it reminds me of the gospel account when Jesus is giving a sermon and he gives a sermon that's so difficult to understand and so intense that when he's done preaching, everyone leaves. Like here, I would consider that a bad sermon. <laughs> if you had all left by the time I was done, I would feel badly and feel like I had done something wrong. But there's a sermon in scripture where Jesus preaches and when he's done, everyone leaves. And the only people standing there are the disciples. And then Jesus looks at them and he says, are you guys gonna leave too? And I'll never forget Peter's response. He says, where are we gonna go? You hold the key to eternal life. Where else will we go? It's hard, but where else will we go? It feels hard to trust a sovereign God and what we're asked to do is to surrender and submit and to trust. But let me tell you one more story this morning as we kind of wrap up that I think will help you with this. It's one more story that I think is helpful for us and it's the story of Jesus. And I think it's fitting that on a morning when we take communion, we would remind ourselves of this. Because maybe you have never submitted to a sovereign God, or maybe you're just struggling to live it out in your day-to-day -day walk, but whether you're someone who's never submitted or is trying to submit, this applies to you. Because that God, that one that we're talking about with supreme power and authority and control over everything, loves you desperately. That God that we're talking about that did all those things that we just read in Acts chapter 12, loves you desperately and he did everything that was required to redeem you from a life of sin and rebellion and invite you to be a part of his family. That's the God we're talking about this morning. That's the God we're talking about surrendering to and trusting. That God. And whether you have a relationship with him this morning or not, I want you to just consider this. That God put his own son on a cross in your place. That God who has control over everything, put his own son on a cross in your place in order to make a way for you to be with him. That's why he did it. And then he says, that is how much I love you. So don't you see that you can trust me? Don't you see that I am trustworthy? Where else will we go? Where else will we experience a love like that? Where else would we want to go than to run into the arms of a God who loves us that desperately? And then is it hard to trust a God like that? And is it hard to surrender and say, God, what you allow and what you bring, I trust you. I trust you. You have your connection card this morning. I just ask if you would take that out. We ask you every week if you would Submit to us a prayer request or a praise. And I'd just like you to frame that this morning in what we're talking about. 
Because I think this question applies to you, whether you know Jesus or not, whether you've ever surrendered your life to him or not. The question is, will I accept a sovereign God? Will I submit to a sovereign God? And will I trust him? Will I trust him? Maybe you need to surrender your whole life to him this morning. Maybe there's a circumstance or difficulty that you're going through and you just think, Lord, I need to give this to you. You're in control. You have authority. I submit it to you. Or maybe this morning, you're on the flip side. You are witnessing the extraordinary power of God to rescue. And you want to praise God. And I would just say, invite us into that. Because we ask for those prayer requests and we pray for them. We really do. But if you turn that card over, there's a spot for you to share your story of what God is doing in your life and we would love to hear that and celebrate with you and praise a sovereign God who is trustworthy and loves us desperately because that's why we're here. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we're so grateful that you love us so desperately and we're grateful that we can trust you. Would you help us to trust you because it's hard for us? Lord, we don't understand the depth of your love. And so help us to understand it and help us to submit to your authority in our life. We love you and we praise you this morning. Would you hear our praises now? Would they be sweet to your ears as we sing to our God and our Savior? Pray this in your name. Amen.